0: The following is part of the A1 Wrestling.com podcast family.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories, ladies and gentlemen. This is Volume 8. We're coming at you with, well, as the, the. Name implies classic wrestling memories. We talk old school professional wrestling. We talk angles, talent, just everything that stems from what many like to call uh, the golden years, so to speak. You know, we we've talked going all the way back to the 1920s with the Gold Dust Trio. We've talked the 1970s territories with uh, Susan Tex Green. We've talked Starcade in our very first episode and uh, we got another title lined up for you this week. And once again, I don't have to do it alone. I do have my good friend and co-host coming at you from a nice padded cell with, with his teddy bear in South Kakalaki. Crazy Train,
0: Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, I think uh, this is going to be an episode I think a lot of our listeners are going to remember this this era fondly. And quite frankly, this is uh, probably as current <laughs> current. Uh, topic as we'll ever talk about on classic wrestling memories and it still happened 20 years ago so i guess 20 years essentially gives it credibility as being classic don't you think
1: right you know it's it, it you can't really do a show called classic wrestling memories and review last week's raw you know that's not why we're here we've got a sister podcast for that
0: well then why don't we uh kind of let the cow the bag and let the let the listeners know what we're going to talk about this week absolutely
1: That Iconic Music Plays, yeah, of course, lets everybody know we are, in fact, devoting this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories to what is legitimately, in my opinion, one of the greatest, at least in its initial stages, it was one of the greatest storylines in the history of pro wrestling, and I do not use those words lightly. We are talking the formation and history of the NWO, at, at the very least you know, the original incarnation Obviously, the idea of an evading stable is nothing new, but we'll get into that. Your thoughts overall as far as the NWO
0: and the you know the formation and maybe that first year or so that we're going to talk about? Uh, I I think it was a great concept. I think it was an old concept that was updated to fit the time. And I always bring up wrestling as a business at the end of the day. And if it's about making money and drawing fans, well, yeah. This angle did it that very, very well. As good or better than any angle I can think of. Going back, you know, to the god to the early days of like pioneer wrestling, it was it made money. It drew, uh, it, it drew people to house shows. It drew people to buy pay per views, and it drew people to watch wrestling on Monday night. So by every metric you can think of, it drew fans and made money. So yeah, that makes it success. Mm-hmm.
1: And as far as the concept goes, you know, when you have a group of evil villains together wreaking havoc like the four horsemen were doing, you know, 10 years before this, it's a tried and true system that works when it's done well, i.e. the horsemen, you know, the NWO, more modern examples, maybe like evolution. Um, shield. Maybe, yeah, I was about to say, you could even say the shield in, is in there. Legacy. Right. You know, It also fails when it's not done so well, i.e. just about every stable TNA has put <laughs> together in the history of their existence. <laughs>
0: Which was a different one every other... They had a thing for stables there for a good long run in that mm-hmm. company. Wow.
1: Yeah. But when you look at the uh, the brainchild behind many of those stables, it's easy to see why. But uh, before-
0: uh, We digress. Yeah. <laughs> Classic wrestling memory, Seth. Not current. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or at least more current.
1: <laughs> but before we get into the uh, roots of the formation of the NWO, uh, let's talk a little bit about what the business of pro wrestling was at the time now we were still in the first year of the monday night war you know wcw and wwf at the time and you were saying train that actually business was down overall uh, during this right. during this time period right
0: no i i think if you look at the landscape overall i don't think it was as down as it had been i mean the real down days i think at least in north america for wrestling uh, and I, I i'd have to go crunch the numbers and pull up some stuff but i, I mean, you're talking like by the time you started watching, Seth, ninety-one, ninety-two, ninety-three, and there business was just down. Uh, I tell you who was really hitting it this time: uh, all Japan, which of course was the the home of Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and Doctor Death Steve Williams and, and and you know at least American guys. Yeah, Terry Gordy's in there too. Was, they considered their heyday. So that was really the only place, I think, in the world that was really drawn well. Everybody else was kind of stacked. Business was picking up for the WWF and the WCW, but they were both very much in transitional phases. Um, And as we kind of talk about the landscape of both companies leading into this, I think you'll see what we're talking about. What do you want to talk about first, WWF at this point or WCW? Uh,
1: Let's talk about WWF uh, because Mm -hmm. you know this was, like I said, first year of the Monday Night War. And I think we could do a whole episode on the Monday network, right quite, quite frankly uh, right. There's, there's enough to talk about, but I don't think Vince McMahon saw w c w as a threat uh, early on, and, and no, there I don't were people so. there were people in w c w who didn't think they were a threat to w w f uh, and this is even when they had uh, Hogan
0: and Savage and guys
1: like that working for them
0: right because I mean we're talking Hogan had been working for the company about what two years at this point Savage about a year and a half
1: yeah so- so- sounds about right. And uh, really, a lot of Monday Night Raw, it was a vastly different show than what it's become. And quite frankly, Raw is what it is now because of the Monday Night War. And again, we could spend a whole episode detailing why. But Raw was much more of a traditional wrestling show in in that you had... Enhancement matches? Yeah, you had the undercard matches, the squash matches. Uh, The main eventers didn't really wrestle that much. It really was more like the weekend television back in the day. Like when I used to watch, uh, before I watched, uh, regularly, if I watched one of the weekend shows, boy, I was happy just to get that 32nd Hulk Hogan promo.
0: Right. You know? and, and what you did see of the main event guys was usually the progressing of an angle along pushing towards the pay-per-view that was coming. Cause you had to remember we're talking what, four pay-per-views at that point, five a year, not mm-hmm. the 30 something they have now.
1: Right. This
0: is when each uh,
1: company had four, maybe five major shows and they oh, usually weren't in the same month. So right. ha- having wrestling and watching as your hobby
0: usual at this point on raw to, like you said, being like an old uh, studio show, they would show clips from uh, house events. They would show clips from previous shows that you don't really see a lot anymore. I mean, you see a little bit nowadays in packages of uh, this happened four weeks ago to kind of, Catch up the fans. That was a lot more prevalent on Raw at this time. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you got. We just talked about Hogan and Savage, you know, leaving and coming to WCW a few years prior to this. That's what I kind of meant by the the landscape change. You know, at at this point, Vince was well ensconced in what I believe he called the New Generation Era, Mm -hmm. um, where it was it was a it was a seismic shift to younger talent or guys that had been around a long time and had earned their their respect from the fans and pushing them. So this is the beginning of, you know, Bret Hart, Sean Michaels, Sean Michaels,
1: and ironically, um, Lex Luger.
0: Yeah. Uh, Kurt Henning. Uh, these were, these were, we were seeing a little bit smaller, more athletic guys. Um, I mean, he still had the big guys. He still had, you know, uh, Razor Ramon, who's obviously a major part of the, what we're going to talk about today. And Kevin Nash, both bigger guys. Um, Fesha Kev, um, Uh, He was just making a change, you know, and um, he he was uh, he was beginning to move away from the cartoony uh, Hulkamania rock and wrestling of the 80s. But it was still there. I think you would always joke. This was the era in the WWF when every other guy, especially the mid card, to lower card guys, all must have got paid squat because they all had second jobs. Right. It was, you know, this is also the days of like Duke the Dumpster Drozzy. Yeah. Sparky plug. And yeah, Sparky plug and. It's just, and then just really, really just horrible gimmicks like MANTAR. It was, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you're seeing MANTAR. You could see Bret Hart or Kurt Henning wrestle the One Two Three Kid in a, in a, a, a Matt Classic. So it was a real strange time in the WWF. I think. So that pretty
1: much summarizes what a typical WWE show was at at, at the time. I mean, there was some good stuff, but there was a lot of really hokey stuff. And I think really because right. Vince always had the kids in mind. You know that right, that's always right. what what he was it, still
0: going. I think that was still always his core audience, or at least what he was the demographic he was shooting. Um, right. You know, and and uh, when all this happened, well, let's talk about WCW first. Let me backtrack. Let's talk about WCW at a, at a parallel time, and then I'll I'll come back to that thought if you don't mind, Seth. Sure. But in
1: 1996, a lot of WCW's uh, roster. Were filled up by guys that had been in WWE a few years before, you know, like like the mm-hmm. aforementioned Hogan, Savage, uh, Big Flair. Boss Man, yeah, Flair, Flair even. I now mean, granted, we uh you know Flair had that that Crockett history, but yeah, just a couple of years earlier, Flair was in in WWE.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, just, what was it like three years prior to that? The main event of WrestleMania was Savage Flair, mm-hmm. <laughs> and here they are both main eventers in WCW now. So
1: right, and I know uh, a lot of. Fans give credit to the NWO for being what put WCW over the top of WWE in the ratings wars at the time, and that's not entirely true, because if you look up the numbers, and I'll have a link to ratings histories for the Monday Night War in the show notes at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, there were times when Nitro was beating Raw in the ratings, and that was when WCW was based around a Hogan and Savage feud.
0: Uh, but I think that was short-lived. Um, mm-hmm. As much as there was a seismic shift in the WWE and how they were booking things, I think you saw the same thing in WCW. Um, uh, like we said, they're they're inundated with former WWF talent who I think helped legitimize WCW. There's no question they helped legitimize WCW. Hulk Hogan – got to remember, folks. This is before The Rock or Stone Cold or Kurt Angle or Brock Lesnar, Hulk Hogan was the biggest star in wrestling at that point. And him signing with WCW was a big deal for that company. It legitimized them with a lot of casual mainstream fans. And uh, Mm -hmm. Savage didn't hurt either because Savage was very well known too. Uh, And obviously the guys that were working with them got the rub from that. Um, The company as a whole got a rub from that. And the problem was, Um, And where the seismic shift happened, and I think this is the precursor to the NWO, is all those guys, and even the guys who weren't WWE guys, who were WCW mainstays, like a Sting, who were being presented as babyfaces, that nostalgia was beginning to wear off um, at varying levels, depending on the guy you're talking about. Um, And I think all of them... And most importantly, the the vice president at the time, who was Eric Bischoff, since this he heard the crowd. You know, Hogan was getting booed heavily. You know, the red and yellow wasn't working anymore in a lot of places. Savage was starting to not get over like he didn't even sting. You know, the we're talking the surfer sting with the flat top and in the neon colors. Even he was starting to get a battering, a smattering of boos here and there. And it was, I think, just a reflection of the times. You know, we're coming out of the grunge era and the first Gulf War, and you know things were just different in the country. Time was changing. Pop culture was starting to favor the
1: anti-hero. You know, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, kind of give a an analogy here, uh, like one of our sister sister podcasts, Geekville Radio, might do. You look at the world of comic books, and it wasn't guys like Superman that were that were the comic book fans were talking about.
0: It was characters like Spawn,
1: you know, who yeah, a very, Spawn very dark and, character. And-
0: uh, Sp- preacher come out around this time you know which is now of course a, a tv series on amc um constantine got his own title these were darker characters a batman took a decidedly darker turn uh, around this time who was you know a mainstay um and i think so you've got these this this strange amalgam in both companies we're talking about uh mm-hmm. you know where there's changes in talent rosters uh, there's changes in the general perception of wrestling as a whole and where things are heading as, like you said, as, as a society and guys aren't getting the react. I don't think the guys are getting it in either company are not getting the reaction that, that, that they want. I don't think Bischoff was happy with seeing Hogan and Savage and staying and his other baby faces, not as, you know, beloved as they had been. And, uh, numbers will bear out some of the champions they had in the same time, including Kevin Nash's diesel, uh, we're not drawing like Hogan and 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 Savage had in the '80s, or even Flair in the early earlier in the '90s uh, mm-hmm. for Vince. So he wasn't happy either. Um, and I think this led to some cost cutting, uh, changes on 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 Vince's side. Um, and Bischoff, um, uh, had seen. I think what we just talked about the initial success of bringing in a WWF guy and Hogan and Savage. I think he wanted to expand out on that, and contracts were coming up and. Two of the main guys that Vince had, which, you know, was Razor Ramon and Diesel or Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, uh, they like smart businessmen. They they put feelers out everywhere. And when Bischoff was willing to give them more money, they went ahead and signed. And, uh, of course, the fans didn't know that. This is the days before the Internet. And 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 even Meltzer and and Keller and those guys only had rumor and innuendo at this point. They, They couldn't, you know, I mean, nowadays, I guess somebody signs, everybody knows about it, you know. I mean, when Adam Cole signed with the WWE away from New Japan, everybody knew within 24 hours. That that didn't happen back then, you know? And another thing to look at,
1: since everybody talks about ratings with the Monday Night War, a lot of times both companies, they were getting like ones in the early days. They're like yeah. high ones, low twos. So there
0: weren't nearly the amount of people that were watching. Uh, Wrestling overall. Right. So, I mean, there's your landscape. You've got two companies that are, not happy with the direction they're going, a, a changing fan base, uh, major players from one company taking the money and going to another. Um, and there's there's something there that's waiting to happen. Just no one's really sure what to do to make this work. And then Eric Bischoff, who is, we like we just said, has hired away Scott Hall and Kevin Nash from WWF, two of their main event guys, even though they hadn't drawn as well as you know, would be expected. Um, He makes a fateful trip to Japan because WCW had had a working relationship for a long time with New Japan. And there he witnesses an angle that would become the, I guess, essentially the blueprint, wouldn't you say, for what the NWA angle became?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And it's definitely something, once again, you do it well and it works. And this is another example of it being done well, at least the first half of it.
0: Right, it was an invasion angle um uh not to get too far on what's going on in Japan, but I don't think you can tell the story of n w o fully if you don't tell a little bit of this history um While this is going on, and i I wouldn't be surprised this is probably also reflective of the you know shift in society. This is the infancy days of mixed martial arts as well, you know the u f c um that style has always been a little bit more appreciated, i think, in Japan than it has in North America. And Inoki, Antonio Inoki, who was running New Japan at the time, going all the way back to his match with Ali in the 70s, had always been a guy who wanted the world to perceive wrestling in, in, in general, but himself in particular as a, one of its top stars, as legitimate tough guys, you know. And I think um, mixed martial arts kind of um, threatened that, for lack of a better word. Uh, so there were a lot of promotions that popped up in Japan at the time that were um, – work shoots they were much more um in line at least visually speaking for the fans of a ufc match they didn't have a lot of the high spots with a lot of you know ground and pound and mat stuff with a lot of submissions and one of the top companies at the time um uh in japan for that style was called uh, uwfi which was like union of wrestling force international i believe was what the what the initials stood for but nonetheless, they had the legitimacy of Luthes giving him their, their, um, his seal of approval and bringing the old, old NWA belt over with them to make their belt. Um, and I don't think we need to talk on classic wrestling memories too much about the legitimacy of Luthes as a badass. Uh, <laughs> so having a guy like that give you the seal of approval, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: I, I show UWFI standing for Union of Wrestling Forces International.
0: Okay, I had the F wrong. But um, they were doing okay, but they were still floundering. I mean, you, New Japan, All Japan, as we mentioned, All Japan was really doing great numbers at this time. We're still the number one, number two, and um, Luthes and part of his giving the seal of approval to UFWI had downplayed the style of New Japan, which has always been the more glitzy of the major Japanese promotions. Um, I've often, when trying to describe the major promotions Japan. To non-Japanese wrestling fans, New Japan probably has always been more their WWF. Do you think that that analogy is fair, Seth? I think so.
1: I haven't seen very much All Japan, but, mm-hmm. but you know, All Japan definitely did seem to be the more serious, for lack of a better term. Now,
0: the old—I I, mean—I mean—if you're making the old NWA versus WWF comparisons of the '70s and '80s, All Japan would have been NWA. Uh, New Japan would have been WWF and that reflected the fact that's who they had working relationships with in that era. You know, the had the working relationship with Vince's father and Baba who ran all Japan had the working relationships with, with you know, Sam Mushnick in the NWA office in St. Louis. So, I mean, I guess that <laughs> kind of says well, it all, doesn't it? Well,
1: well remember Baba is a three time NWA world champion,
0: right? Exactly. And so, you know, that you, you, you've got that laid out and the bookers and people who run UFWI are looking anything to, to, to make money because they are floundering. They're drawing crowds, but they're still there. I mean, everybody knows the first five years you open a business are the most precious. If you, I mean, you lot, most businesses close in that. They need something big, so they are willing to make, cut a deal with New Japan. New Japan's looking for something different, uh, and they agree to an interpromotional invasion-type angle. With, with the caveat that Ricky Kosh, Choshu, who was the, was the booker for New Japan, for Antonio Noki... Said, we get to, we get to book all the interpromotional matches. Uh, I think everybody can figure out how that went down. But I mean, Chosu had an <laughs> opportunity now is, oh, I'll, I'll show, I'll show Luthes. I'll book all my guys to win and make, you know, make us look strong. So, you know, um, when you hear people say on podcasts here and other podcast listeners that invasion angles historically have never worked in wrestling, here's another example of another where egos get in the way and one company has to, I mean, it's just, it's never what you fans think you're going to see because egos get in the way. Um, but nonetheless, right. you go
1: back to the yeah. '80s with the uh, Crockett Croc- buying UWF. buying out UWF. U- U- yeah, you, uh, a more recent go example. Back to, uh, you go back you
0: to know, the '70s with a being bought out by Jarrett. Other than mm-hmm. other than Randy and Lanny, who who from that company got over on Memphis guys? Nobody.
1: And, and the most glaring example is the whole WWF WCW invasion in
0: 2001. You know, right. is there anybody that liked that? There was the Atlanta. There were the two promotions in Atlanta in the early '80s when when Ray Gunkel. I mean, there's a gazillion examples. This is just another one we can throw on that massive heap of yeah that yeah that doesn't work. Only and it doesn't work because it, it on on paper it should work, but then egos get involved. But anyway, nonetheless, mm-hmm. uh, there were some intriguing matches, and Bischoff nonetheless did get to see some of that and just was enamored and it's like I want to do this. He always envisioned an idea of an angle where WCW, who who was seen, I think, in his eyes and in most people's eyes as the underdog and the smaller company, because it kind of was, um, uh, being invaded by what would be at least assumed to be WWF, or at least a, a, a rival company. And right. now he's got Savage, and he's got Hogan, and he's got them under his umbrella, and now he's got Nash, and he's got Hall, and I think we see the groundwork laid for where this is headed, you know, right? And, and and I guess you can't you can't really tell the story also of NWO of, of of Nash and Hall on their way out of on their way out of the WWF to WCW. You want to relate that story as best you can remember, Seth? Well, before showing up on
1: Nitro, uh, Kevin Nash was last seen losing to the Undertaker at WrestleMania 12, and Razor Ramon had been taken off tv a, a few months before that maybe even maybe even a month i know there was a cover story that it was unprofessional behavior or something to that effect but my understanding is vince knew that scott hall was on his way out so he took him off tv so that you know to cool him off so to speak because mm-hmm. you know why do you put a guy over if you know he's on his way out
0: that that right. doesn't make much sense to me right and then uh, right before they i mean i i think it was maybe a week or two before they come to WCW and show up on mm-hmm. their television. This,
1: the television. That you're talking this that that uh, house show that, that the cage match with all, with all four of them.
0: Yeah, the curtain call, which has become one of the most infamous, you know, events. I mean, he still had to fill up. He still had to fill up Madison Square Garden for his monthly show there. They were known stars, and I'm I'm sure he wanted to give him a good paycheck out on the road. But it uh, was long story short. Uh, Shawn Michaels have become the champion, and uh, we could talk about the the Click in a whole other episode too. But they were part of a, a behind the scenes group called the Click, which was Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, um, Triple H, Waltman, Triple H, uh, uh, Triple H, Sean Waltman, and and uh, Scott Hall. Or did I say Scott Hall already. And uh, they, who I think Sean Sean wrestled Kevin that night uh, in the main event for the world title, and of course Sean went over because he was a world champion. And Hunter had wrestled Razor earlier that night. And they thought that they were, you know, because they were buddies and they had a lot of political stroke. They came out without permission. Two baby faces and two heels had just wrestled each other on this show and gave each other a hug right in front of the whole crowd.
1: Right. And Um, there is video footage of that happening because a lot
0: of these house shows were still recorded just for studies uh, sake. Right. And, oh, that made Vince livid. Uh, he saw that as very unprofessional, a slap in the face. Um, And I could see where he's coming from, Mm -hmm. you know, especially given the time.
1: I mean, nowadays with social media, guys thank each other for a great match on social media. You know, you really want to get me riled up, don't you? (laughs) Classic wrestling members. Classic. Okay. Uh, But so something like, like
0: let me, let me, let me say something. Okay. And I've been wanting to say this for a long time to our listeners. Well, crazy train, how can you bash all these new school guys. When you do a podcast like this, the difference ladies and gentlemen is I'm not trying to draw money in this business anymore. I was very protective of my character and my gimmick. When I was actively wrestling, I kept to myself. I was a hermit. Um, I would talk to fans, but it was, I I always separated myself from them. However you want to perceive that. And I mean, my phone number was unlisted. Um, I lived out in the country on purpose um, away from people. I even would go out and go grocery shopping and do shopping at 24 hour stores. So I wouldn't have to mingle with the public. It kind of gave away, even though I didn't wrestle that much in my hometown, it gave away the perception of, I was an escape mental patient, you know? And, and that's what I say to all these guys. If you try and draw money, even in today with the internet, you need to keep your character up. And these guys were getting ready to leave one company. They had made money for go to another company, and they weren't even respecting those characters. That's a bad example of that. I, I didn't want to get off on a tangent, but I think you understand my point mm-hmm. and my analogy there, don't you, Seth?
1: Right, right. I, I think it's why somebody on the inside would have a different reaction than a, a typical fan who would see that and go, you know, what, what's the big deal? Because I'm pretty sure 20-some years ago when that happened, the fans in the audience, most of them probably did not know oh, the Hall did. and Nash really- Oh, they did. Okay, they
0: did I mean because several of the several of the videos I've seen of the incident were like handheld cameras because I mean, this is days before you know cameras on your phone, right? And you could audibly hear people around the the fan filming this. What? What's going on? They were confused.
1: Yeah, which was pretty much what I was getting at. It it would it confused the fans to see two good guys and two bad guys hugging in the middle of the ring.
0: And then, okay, you've heard us talk about here on Classic Wrestling Memories. Your job when you left a territory was to go out on your back because you were leaving and the other guy was staying to make him look strong. Can you see how that's the exact opposite of that? I mean, yeah, they did they did what they were supposed to do. Razor and, and Kevin lost, but then they undid all the uh, putting over Triple H and putting over Sean, uh, and those last those are their last matches by going out and doing that. It, it it's now Vince is left with having to explain that to his fans. That's pretty unprofessional, you know? Um mm-hmm. I guess the only thing, and I don't want to get into politics, but it, it reminds me of uh, probably a similar mindset. I don't think they think thought anything of it; they were just being silly. But there's those rumors of when the Clinton administration left the White House for w- George W. Bush, some of his people took all the Ws off all the keyboards. You know, it's childish, but it's 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 it's, it's unprofessional at the same time as being childish. You know, mm-hmm. it does not really hurt anybody, but it, it was it was not professional. But nonetheless. It happened, you know, and so Kevin and and Scott have left Vince with a and you need to remember that. Now, Vince has a sour taste in his mouth and these guys have gone south to Atlanta to work for Ted Turner and Eric Bischoff. And I think that leads us to, you know, it's probably a good time to take a break. Don't you think right now? and We'll come back with the actual formation.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. we'll take a quick break. This is classic wrestling memories. and we come back, we're going to talk the initial shot fired in the invasion of WCW by the NWO. Now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Geekville Radio. Geekville Radio is a show dedicated to news and subjects in the world of geekery: superheroes, science fiction, comics, gaming, TV. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the A1 podcast, Geekville Radio is available on iTunes, Stitcher and at geekvilleradio.com. You never know who's going to show up on the A1 podcast.
0: What's up, all you stars and stars? This is
1: former WWE Diva Maria Knight.
0: I'm Victor Leanti of House of Hardcore.
1: This is Jason Kincaid, and you're listening to the A1 podcast.
0: Pardon the interruption. Aaron Bauer from AIW here. This is Dylan Sosmore, the leader of Exceptional Exotic, the fastest rousing group in the national wrestling alliance. What's up, everybody? This is The Morning Star, William Huckabee. This is Mr. Saturday Night, Michael Barrett.
1: This is Allison Kay, and you are
0: listening to the A1 Wrestling Podcast on a1-wrestling.com. Hey, everybody. This is Jock Sampson, the Appalachian Outlaw, and you're listening to the A1 Podcast, baby. Get tall. Ladies and gentlemen, this is No Plain Train Iceberg, and you're listening to the A1 Podcast. And if you're not, get your ass on the internet and listen to it because you're missing out on a lot of good shit. <laughs> Hi, this is Gregory Iron from TWO. You are listening to the A1 Wrestling Podcast, where wrestling and pop culture collide. My name is Super Cop Dick Justice, and you are listening to the A1 Podcast, where pop culture and wrestling collide. This is the only podcast that's Jimmy Rave approved.
1: All right, we are back here, ladies and gentlemen, on Classic Wrestling Memories, and wrestling fans, we are going to talk about, as I said before, the first shot fired in the in the invasion of WCW by the NWO, and that was May 27th, I believe, 1996. And they came back from commercial break, uh, WCW did. It was the top of the second hour, which would have meant this was right when Monday Night Raw was starting. And the match that is going on when they come back from commercial break is, get this, Steve Dahl, <laughs> the, former, the former Stephen Dunn of Well Done and WWE, facing Mike Enos, formerly of uh, Destru- Destruction Crew and formerly of the Beverly Brothers in WWE. Mm. So even the uh, mid-card match has two guys that have a WWE history in them. But
0: Yeah, but w- I mean, these were not guys that were put, being pushed at the time. I think that's important to note, too. It's just these are two guys that are in the eyes of the fans. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, you really had to know the history and read the magazines like I did at the time, you know, the after mags, to know that... Right. Mike Enos was one
0: of the Beverly Brothers right I mean I knew Mike Enos from that and I was I loved Destruction Career and I was an AWA fan even in the waning days and I mean I'd met Steve at this point I'd worked shows with Steve Dahl in my career so you know anyway go ahead Mm -hmm. but
1: about 30 seconds after coming back from commercial and it's like business as usual then all of a sudden here comes Scott Hall hop on the railing wearing one of the best denim outfits I've ever seen in my life oh god yes (laughs) only people like Scott Hall could wear that 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 type of outfit. Uh, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is the match just kind of stops and Hall gets in the ring and he's still doing the fake Cuban accent that that he did as Razor.
0: All the mannerisms of Razor Ramon.
1: Now, I've heard Diamond Dallas Page say aside from the accent and the gold, what's the difference between Razor Ramon and Scott Hall? <laughs> you know, and I think there's some merit to that. Sure, but sure. uh so so he said the, that infamous promo, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. You won a war, you got one. And I'm sitting here and everybody I knew, we didn't really have regular Nitro parties at my house at this point. That's why, as, I, as I've said at the at the top of the show, this is one of my favorite times in wrestling is because every week it was the wrestling party in, in, in my basement. Mm-hmm. And those memories stick with you. So it's not that I think that this type of stuff is how wrestling should be. It's just, these are the fondest memories that I have watching wrestling is I'm, I'm 20, 21 years old. You can figure out what's what my diet consists of. And, uh, yeah, I have my other coworker friends over and we're, we're, uh, playing over power cards and watching wrestling. It's just,
0: sure. It's just know, a Monday
1: night at the house. Right. Right. Uh, what's the beer commercial, you know, it just doesn't get any better than this, but right. You know, so, so Scott Hall cuts his promo and, you know, the, the Mark fans like me are saying to ourselves, wait, we just saw this guy on Raw just a couple of weeks ago, and right. now he's coming out here talking about a war. So it's pretty clear the implication. Now, to WCW's credit, they never outright said the words Vince McMahon, World Wrestling Federation, WWF, Interpromotional, Razor, or anything R- like that. Razor
0: Ramon. Right. Um, I mean, I was, I'm sure there were guys on Turner's legal staff that told them what they couldn't, couldn't say. I don't know that for a fact, but I thought that was just, it was brilliant. It was all smoke and mirrors and it had such a buzz that even the casual fans, and and I know this is hard for some people to believe, but at that point in time, there were fans who were explicitly WCW fans and that's all they watched and WWF fans and that's all, all they watched. It would be the outcome of nwo and what it led to to where people were channel switching you know so there were probably people in the crowd that were wcw fans and um they didn't know who he was but he was so well enough known those who did were telling him really quick you know what i'm saying right if
1: you go back and watch on the network that episode like i said mm-hmm. it's, it's late may i want to say it's may 27th of, of mm-hmm. 1996 and you Audibly, hear gasps in the crowd, and you see people stand up and look, uh, mm-hmm. and almost like a fight's breaking out in the crowd or something like that. But no, it, it was right. all it was was Hall walking out, and everybody
0: knew who he was. Right. I think you have to go back to uh, you know two episodes ago when we talked about the Jarrett Law, the Jarrett um, Gula split of Memphis. When Dan Wilson brought up at that era in Memphis, they didn't know NWO, and it was just wrestling. And I think that's what wrestling was to fans then too. But there was still a distinction between, well, this guy wrestles for one league and this guy wrestles for another. But it was all just wrestling. I don't think the, you know, that would come later when fans would have, I think, the, the loyalty. Uh, and, and for like here us here in the South, I don't know a lot of people never watched WWF simply because it just wasn't what they grew up with, you know. And I think probably the same thing could be said for people up north. So it wasn't like there was a brand loyalty. It's still just wrestling to them. I'm, I'm trying to make people understand that it wasn't like, um, I don't know. I think you understand where I'm going when I'm trying to explain that.
1: Right, right. To the casual fan, they're not necessarily clearly decided between one company or or another. No,
0: you know? it's just pro wrestling for them. But yeah, I, I just thought that was it was really brilliantly done. It was very, and I think at this point, I think at this point, I don't know. it's Speculation on my part. Bischoff had a, a, a really good idea of where he wanted this angle to go, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and and I've talked about before, we talked a little bit about it in our booking one on one episode. The way I, I I didn't bring this up in our B on one episode. The way I when I've booked, I've always booked the way AD Graham, who was one of you know the bookers I mentioned, you, you know where you want to go and then you work backwards from there, you know? Right. And um to get to that that final destination. I'm not sure, going back and watching this, Bischoff had a clear, defined idea in his mind what his final destination was. You know what I'm saying? And right. um, the more I watched this, and I watched this again just a couple weeks ago to get ready for this, this particular recording, great start. And I think he knew he wanted to have an invasion. I don't think if he knew how he wanted the invasion to end quite yet I he had an idea. And and I also think, no offense to Eric Bischoff, he's a TV guy, he's not a wrestling guy. And I think that proved out as this angle went on. But mm-hmm. for as far as impactful and the way to start an angle, I haven't seen many better.
1: Right. I, I think he knew at least what the end of the first act was going to be, so to speak. Because right. Eric went to his bookers, one of which was Kevin Sullivan. And again, mm-hmm. I don't know whose specific idea it was, but because literally just about everybody that worked for WCW at the time backstage tries to take credit for the NWO.
0: Isn't that so, funny? How the, one of the biggest drawing acts in all of wrestling, everybody wants a piece of sand they created it <laughs> anyway.
1: Yeah. But somewhere in that nucleus of promoters and, and bookers, the idea came about that in order for this to truly work, they need the all-American lawful good training prayers and vitamins Hulk Hogan
0: to turn evil and join with these hideous villains. Right. Well, you're, you're skipping apart. Before that happens, doesn't Scott come out the next week and and, and interrupt again and tell them that he's got a surprise for him the next week? And that's when Nash debuted. Right.
1: You're, you're exactly right. I was just saying that I think Eric, at this point in time, still had in his mind that in order for this to work, the, the, the initial payoff has to be Hogan at whatever pay-per-view it was. I think it was Bash at the Beach.
0: Right. Right. And this goes back to what we were talking about when we were talking about the landscape at the time. Hogan, of all the top upper card baby faces that WCW had at the time, was probably the one receiving the most backlash from the, from the fans. We, like we said, Savage and Sting were getting some, but Hogan was outright getting booed by the whole crowd. And, and, and I mean, I'm not talking like, Roman Reigns or John Cena today, where it's a a 50 50 split, where you know the guys boo him, but the girls and and the kids cheer for him. It wasn't even that with Hogan at this point. There were towns where everybody was booing Hogan, so you know.
1: Yeah, there's there's video evidence of Hogan facing Flair, and Flair is desperately trying to be the heel, and Hogan's the one getting booed out of the building, and the and the crowd is hanging on everything Flair does.
0: A lot of those are here in the Carolinas. Flair just reached that iconic status in this part of the country. We're, I mean, he, he could have, you know, he could have gouged somebody's eye out with a rusty fish hook and we we just yeah, it's Flair, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway.
1: But yeah, Nash came out, I think it was the second week, and he, he didn't really come out in front of the crowd. Nash came out.
0: To the announce table, wasn't
1: it? Right, and, and he just took a mic. And he cut that promo saying something about you know you got all these dinosaurs and you get you got to hook them up to life support. We're the big such. boys
0: play. I ain't seen nothing yet. We're the big boys. You mm-hmm.
1: know,
0: it was a great promo. Really, it was. They were. I mean, these were a very good promos by by Scott and Kevin. I think.
1: Don't you? Yeah. If there's one thing, because I I do think Scott Hall was a great wrestler in his in his prime. Mm-hmm. You know you know um but Nash and I'd like to think Kevin would tell you this that. In ring he's no Eddie Guerrero, no, I he's the first to tell you that right, but he was always a great talker
0: right and i and i, and I and let me defend kev here a little bit i don't think Kev is as bad in ring when he was healthy as a lot of people think he was. Uh, he did some things that were questionable to me, but he was a big guy who was was athletic at one time but had bad knees from a college basketball career, but a guy that big that didn't hurt people that i know of i mean i think he hurt a few people every once in a while and that that happens that's always a big sign to me as a guy that big that doesn't hurt people
1: that was exactly what i was going to ask you when's the last time you heard about kevin nash hurting hurting somebody
0: he did crack terry funk towards the end of the nwo's run pretty good with a crowbar and concuss terry uh which Arn anderson being another old-timer took care of that receipt the next week but that's another story for another time And that was one of those things, I don't think he meant to hurt Kerry. I think it was just an accident. And I don't think Terry blamed him, you know? Right,
1: right. A- Accidents do happen. But just my opinion as a non-worker, once again, never took a bump in my life. But I think uh, I'm in the right frame of mind that one of the things about being a good worker is being safe in the ring so that your fellow wrestlers trust you in the ring. Can't make money if you don't have a dance partner.
0: Don't um, have a dance partner if he's if he's banged up.
1: But anyway, they, they establish... Uh, nash as being the second guy and then they start the implication of there being a third man and i remember they they did this whole lottery where it was they they picked out at random the three guys that were going to defend wcw against the outsiders right and, and and i remember the names were ballied about that it. it was hogan uh sting i think luger
0: savage you, flair and i can't remember who the other yeah, one i was. think
1: uh ray trailer's in there somewhere i think he would have been doing the guardian angel gimmick at that point um Okay. But, but uh, and I, I could be wrong about that. It, it's out there on the network on those 1996 Nitros. So uh, if somebody wants to correct us, please right. do. But conveniently, Hogan's name wasn't picked. Hogan was not booked for the Bash of the Beach card, uh, at least not to my recollection.
0: No, he wasn't. One of the things I remember vividly about this, during the time frame you're talking about, before the big reveal of Hogan, uh, they had another pay-per-view or Clash of the Champions where... They still were not announcing their third member who it was going to be. And Bischoff did an interview segment with him on this clash or this other pay-per-view. He kind of got in Kevin Scott's face, which ended with him getting jackknife powerbombed off the the rampway through a a table. You remember that spot?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it was the stage. I think it was the stage that broke. But mm-hmm. and, I, and I remember because this was about the time WWE had actually threatened a lawsuit or a lawsuit was pending.
0: Right, right, and you had the, you had the whole fake razor, fake diesel fiasco. But hey, mm-hmm. we got we got Kane out of it, so you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I, I think that was why uh, Eric, of course, playing the uh, interviewer. I don't think he had publicly stated that he was the the vice president at the time. But mm-hmm. uh, that, that's why Eric, as an interviewer on camera, said, "Do either of you men work for Vince McMahon or the WWF?" And they both said, "No." Mm-hmm. And that that's covering your butts right there
0: and you're right i i totally forgot about the context of the interview as a as a worker i'm sitting there thinking oh my god an, an announcer just got physically assaulted by a wrestler that mm-hmm. was a big deal at that point that did not this was not the days of when when announcers and this is long before the michael cole versus jerry lawler feud you know what i'm saying <laughs> i think back to the the first great american bash in 1985 where David Crockett was the guest referee of Ric Flair versus Nikita Koloff. The whole setup for that was David just being an American, disgusted with the actions of the Russians, calling them on it, and Nikita Koloff does Russian, sickling him out of his boots Uh, during an interview segment on Crockett Television. And the fans going, oh, crap. That was 10 years before that, or 11 years. So that did not happen very often.
1: Another WWF example was when Austin delivered his very first stunner to McMahon. This was when Austin was right. still a heel and McMahon was just an announcer and didn't right. I, I don't know did they stretcher McMahon out? I know I know McMahon sold it like he was dead.
0: No, I do remember uh, uh, right around this time, maybe right before or right after it, they had Gorilla Monsoon as um you know the president of the WWF get attacked by Vader. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yeah, and they, and they had to cart him out. That was that, and that was to cover the fact that Vader was actually having to take time off to have a shoulder surgery. You know, it, it was an excuse to have him off TV for a month. But that was Gorilla Monsoon. He was still a big guy, and, he, and everybody knew he was a former wrestler. You know, Bischoff's not a big guy, and he was not a wrestler. And he got attacked by a guy who was over seven feet tall. So, I mean, it's already one of the first major parts of this angle. is kind of changing what we do in wrestling. You see what I'm saying?
1: Right. And even the following night on Nitro, you know, cause Hall and Nash would do these promos just walking through the crowd with the microphones. I remember Nash right. saying, Hey Bischoff, you get any frequent flyer miles for that trip you took? <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, it just, yeah, yeah. It was just, yeah, it was. So we're not only is he come up with this invasion angle. I think Eric, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly is really changing wrestling landscape to what we have now, you know, um, Anyway, that was just one of the first examples I thought of that, where wrestlers attacking non-wrestlers like that. You, you just never saw that. I mean, first off, there were certain guys like, I mean, Lance Russell, Carden Soli, Bob Cottle, Bill Mercer, guys, they were never going to have hands put on them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, right. But, I mean, David Crockett at least had been a wrestler for a cup of coffee in the early 70s, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was established at that point that David Crockett was the kid brother of Jim Crockett, the owner of the company.
1: I, I did look it up. That was June 1996, the Great American Bash, where Kevin Nash powerbombed Derek Bischoff through a table.
0: So it was the pay-per-view right before Bash at the Beach, where Hogan...
1: Exactly, yeah. And I think that's also where Hall cut the promo, because I still remember it to this day, 20-some years later, where he he said something in effect of, because when a big man, the medium-sized man, pointing at himself, and our right. third
0: guy... <laughs> Right, like,
1: right, right. Scott, you're not medium-sized.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, in that world, he is. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but
0: it was still funny. I mean, and, and it was still oh, yeah. a very and Scott way, Hall the, thing the, to say. And the delivery was wonderful, yeah. I mean, he was great in that character. There's no doubt about that. So, you know, it, it's that leads, like you said, there was this whole speculation of, of you know, who was, who was going to be the third man. And I thought they did a brilliant job every week on television of making you wonder who the third man was going to be. And Nash and Hall constantly being just anti-authoritarian, rude. Um, they They were true heels, and they were getting booed. I think people forget that. That is what I loved about this angle. They were heels that were trying to and getting heel heat. As I like
1: to say, they were heels that were not afraid to figuratively pee on the fans' shoes.
0: No, not at all. And the NWO became what it became, and we'll get to that later in, the, in this discussion. But at the very beginning, I loved this, uh, you know, because it was like, oh, wow, heels actually being heels again. Because we just talked about in the first segment how the landscape was changing, and guys who had traditionally been baby faces were getting booed, and things were changing. This was, a, this was a return back to what the formula that works, in my opinion, you know?
1: You have a good guy, you have a bad guy, and something is at stake
0: right. And the good guy was essentially WCW because the names we listed of the possible lottery, some of those guys were heels. Some of those guys were baby faces,
1: right? You know, Ric Flair was a heel, but even in the context of his character, you can see Ric Flair standing up to villains, trying to step on his territory.
0: Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm the alpha in this yard, you know, Mm. (laughs) you're not going to come here and run, run roughshod over my neighborhood. Exactly. And so I just thought that was awesome, and they did a great job. And WCW, but also while I say that, this is also what where I say it became what wrestling is today, and I think this is bad. It was almost like every week was a hot shot. You know, Yes, you've got to make things impactful, and you've got to make people want. But if you don't have that payoff we're talking about, which was fine this early in the angle because the payoff was like you brought up, bash at the beach. And what happened there? You know, we we had a normal match. But what did you think? Because I know about this point in time, by your own admission, you were the biggest Lex Luger fan in the world. Mm -hmm. What did you think about the way they got Lex Luger out of the match at the start of the match at Bash at the Beach that made it a two-on-two that led to the the Hogan turn? I was afraid
1: because Luger, kind of like Big Show has now, uh, much more so than Luger did. It seemed like Luger would turn every year. You know, he, he was he turned, a guy,
0: kind of a tweener at that point anyways, wasn't he? Yeah. He was a babyface when he tagged with Sting, but the rest of the time he was a heel.
1: Right. Right. So I actually had in the back of my mind maybe that Luger was going to come back and be the guy that...
0: That it was uh, a swerve.
1: Right. And my understanding is that was one of the contingency plans. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I've also that heard was, Sting... My understanding,
0: my understanding I, was that was, was, the, was the backup plan, one of yeah. the backup plans. Sting Sting was... Sting and Hogan, I think, were always the two main guys they thought. Um, I don't think Sting would have – I think Sting would have been impactful because he'd been a babyface for so long in the face of that company as a babyface. It would have had that impactfulness that would have shocked the fans. But mm-hmm. to progress the storyline along of WWF invading WCW without saying it's a WWF doing it, Sting doesn't fit that equation because he never worked for Vince at that point. Whereas right. Hogan and, – and, and to Hogan's credit, when he came out, I didn't like back to what I asked about my question I asked you. I didn't like it simply because and this is not because I've, I it made sense. You you know you make it two – it looks pretty bad for the baby faces to be 3 on 2 against the heels. That's very unbaby if that makes any sense. Right. So the idea of eliminating a guy to make it 2 on 2 I, I get that, right? I just thought the spot they chose to do it was not one that look it was devastating enough to take Luger out. That's, you know, but that's that's either here or there. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter because I don't think many people uh, in history remember that. I don't think, one, they remember Luger got knocked out, and two, what 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 the payoff for this match was was the finish, not the opening, you know? And But I think Hulk Hogan deserves a lot of credit because the way he walked out, you did not know until he finally dropped the leg on Savage, did you?
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, because that type of angle and gimmick has been done so much to death, we're kind of numb to it now. But for mm-hmm. its time, because I didn't see the pay-per-view live, to be honest with you, because uh, I was mm-hmm. working, because I was working, quite frankly. But the word spread pretty, pretty quickly. And, again, oh, yeah, this, it, was this the, was it was before it was, this was before Internet. This is before text messages. Well, it wasn't before Internet, but not many people had the Internet. Um, but I, I think I learned that night that that Hogan was the one that, that turned and just hearing it. Well, my jaw vol- dropped.
0: that's how volcanic a moment it was. You know, Hulk Hogan turned heel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. That, that that's why it worked. You know, we had seen the red and yellow Hulk Hogan for what the better part of twelve years at this point.
1: Right. I mean, the closest analogy by modern day standards we could give would be if John Cena turned. But then again, you know, I think there's a, con- a, a the measure of the fans, anyway. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Something to uh, give you an idea how big of a deal this was. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, who we talked about before, being one of the Bookers. Uh, you know, he was so dedicated to this and quite frankly this is the time when he was uh, breaking up with with uh, Nancy woman and she was uh, going off to be with uh, Chris Benoit mm-hmm. but that's beside the point uh, but make no mistake about
0: it <laughs> interesting uh, footnote that's all <laughs> yeah. uh
1: but yeah make no mistake about it Hogan had his reservations about turning that's that's my understanding about it oh, so yeah. Oh, yeah. so Sullivan invited Hogan to his house, since he now had a spare bedroom, and he, Hogan basically spent the weekend uh, at Sullivan's house, if I'm not mistaken, and, mm-hmm. and to talk about the, the, the heel turn. Right. When Hogan accepted, in the, in the end, uh, I think you were the one that explained this to me, Train, uh, off mic, the reason why he did that was to shield Hogan from the input of uh, the, other, the, other, the other boys, basically, or the, or the other potential political rivals,
0: Yeah, even more importantly, the influence of non-wrestling people that had had his ear that didn't understand why this would work. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, it's one of those things where now Hogan, according to his book, it was his idea. And he even goes as far as say they they went and talked to Ted Turner. That right there is what gave away Hogan's work. Ted Turner didn't give a crap about angles. He just wanted to see the paycheck. He just wanted to see the money, you know. Right, right. Hogan had to be talked into. Bischoff wanted it because Bischoff understood what it would do. And Bischoff understood Hogan's ego enough to understand – to get Hogan to, to buy into the – you're getting booed. This is the natural move. So you'll give, go from being the biggest babyface in the world to being the biggest heel. You're still at the same place in the card, Terry. Mm-hmm. That goes back to the booking one one we were talking about. You kind of almost got to be uh, the politician behind stage. Now, Kevin's job as the head of the booking committee – his job is to make sure that this this seed that's been planted by Eric and he's talked Hogan into doing stays. And you remember Hogan because he was, like we said, he was the biggest star in wrestling at this point. He had agents and lawyers and all other kind of hangers-on around all the time. And and I'm, I'm it's going to sound rude, but it is what it is. Hogan was their cash cow, mm-hmm. and they didn't understand wrestling and the idea of a heel Hogan. Being able to sell merchandise and do personal appearances was unfathomable to them, so oh don't do it, Terry, don't do it, Terry, don't do it, Terry. What they're really saying is, don't cut off my paycheck, don't cut off my paycheck. That's what they're saying, yeah, so Kevin Sullivan's way to prevent that was, "Hey, come stay at my house, you know, Kevin's even said he made a point to make sure Terry Hogan slept in the spare bedroom. And that the agent slept out on the couch. He kept them that physically separated for the weekend, <laughs> you know. And and that to me is an example. Kevin being a very great booker, you know, and and kind of having to massage the ego of everybody involved to get the angle to work because Kevin's a brilliant mind. He knew this was going to work. I mean, come on. Kevin was in Florida when Dusty did the exact same thing in opposite in the seventies, and we've talked about that before on mm-hmm. here on classic, classic Memories. He saw the same type of reaction in the opposite and. um you know, once Hogan was all in, I think he was all in. You know, I, I think, but I think you needed that protection, and Kevin gave it to him. And but back to what I was talking about when he came out and walked down the, the aisle, and you remember this was not a normal set; this is an outdoor show. It had a a beach theme, so the set was very had a beach motif to it with like palm trees and surfboards and stuff. And it was it was it was at MGM, if I remember right, wasn't outdoors?
1: I think it was, yeah.
0: But it wasn't your normal arena setup, I guess is what I'm saying, you know?
1: Right, right. And, and that was another thing, uh, not to deviate too far from the NWO, but that it, it's kind of going back to the WCW versus WWE stuff, is Bischoff, as a promoter, was trying to make his product look differently. So he was choosing mm-hmm. venues that looked different than what WWE was doing. That's why the first Nitro was in the Mall of America, because, boy, that right. was a heck of a visual.
0: Right, and, and, and let's be honest, he got a nice deal from Disney, so that doesn't hurt either when you're talking. Because his job is also worried about the money and the bottom line, too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, but the way Hogan sold it facially and the way his body was, you didn't know. You just didn't. I mean, I think for all the crap everybody gives Hogan, Hogan was the biggest baby face for 12 years, and this one move, and then the promo after. Are you kidding me?
1: One of the best heel promos in the history of time.
0: Exactly. And how does a guy who has been cutting nothing but baby for, for 12 years cut that promo unless he's a hell of a worker, folks? Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Got been a, a baby face for 12 years, cutting some of the best babyface promos ever, cuts that promo. That's where the term the New World, even though he did call it the New World Organization once, but the New World Order comes out of that promo. That's He names the faction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and boy, the reaction of the crowd. Oh, my. <laughs> you
1: saw all that garbage being thrown into the ring? You
0: know. Poor Gene Okerlund getting hit by a drink. <laughs> He's you know, right. and then again, I tell you what. I mean that the whole that whole main event. The matches before it, nothing was really special. Going back and watch that whole show, it was really a one match, one angle show. From the announcers speculating to Luger selling the injury to to get out of there to how Savage and Sting worked to how Kevin Scott worked Hogan's entrance and how he did everything body language the way the referee worked uh, to the turn itself and then the post match oh my goodness with Hogan's promo and Kevin Scott being you know just posturing not saying anything and Gene Okerlund and his disgust and um the announcers once again if you remember Bobby who had this long history of never of always trying to tell everybody Hogan couldn't be trusted mm-hmm. how awesome was that you know and yeah, I remember
1: that uh, Bobby saying, "But whose side is he on?" And of course, the, right. the other announcers being disgusted by that thought, and there were, there were people trying to say, "Oh, he gave away the angle." And of course, me when I heard that, no. I was like, "It's Bo- it's Bobby Heenan. He hates Hogan." Bobby, <laughs> he's hated Hogan
0: his whole career, exactly. And then when he dropped the leg, Heenan going, "I told you. I've been telling you for years. <laughs> it was perfect." And then the, then the cherry on top of this perfect Sunday is is the sign off by Ted, Tony Schiavone, Hulk Hogan. You can go to hell. If I ever
1: meet Tony Schiavone, I want to shake his hand and I'm going to tell him that. He's like, that was one of the greatest sign-offs in the history of
0: time. The, <laughs> everything I just described, that is television wrestling at its finest, ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion. That's everything wrestling should be. Black and white, white hats versus black hats. The only thing that drew away from that was that dumbass Mark who tried to get into the ring. And he found out real quick when it was a Mark Curtis or Randy Anderson met him with a boot right in the face as he stuck his head through the ropes.
1: I'd actually heard that, that Mark Curtis, you know, uh, who, who passed a number of years ago, but I'd heard that,
0: that he he, he was he was tougher than he looked. Kurt, Mark Curtis was a four-time state champion at one of the lower weights in Tennessee in wrestling. He was a legit badass. He was just little. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there was times in Smoky Mountain where Cornette was strapped for talent, and he was he had a martial arts background, too. He put on the hood and be like Leonardo, be one of the one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just to fill a spot, you know, on a house show or something, a spot show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, he was. Yeah. Mark Curtis didn't look like much. And, and God rest his soul. We lost him way too early. And Randy Anderson, too, for that matter. You know, um, both of them very underappreciated uh, referees that were smaller. And, and you know, back then, that's what you had to do, because there was this thing is as, as the 205 live. I mean, if you were a small guy and you want to be in the business, you were a ref. But anyway. Digress. I mean, everything about that, what you heard at the end of that match was true heat. The crowd was now emotionally invested and were mad, and they wanted to pay money to see Hulk Hogan and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash get their comeuppance. Right. That is what we've talked about from day one of this episode one, when wrestling is at its best, right?
1: Right. And, and it goes back to the babyface 101 and the heel 101, because... Part of the thing that made that promo so great that Hogan cut is, like any good heel promo, there's a measure of truth to it. You know, he he talked sure. about how all the all these people, all you all you, you you're here because of me. I'm the person that brought you all here. Which you know, wait, he's actually was a shoot, yeah, sure. you know? <laughs> shoot. But the thing is, is the the babyface would be, um, I'm humbled. Thank you all for coming here. Oh, this is this hey, is supporting
0: so- me. I couldn't do this without you. Yeah.
1: Right, right. I, you know, I, I, I've been watching the G1 Climax so much lately, and that's, that's what Juice Robinson does in, in all of his post-match sure. promos. He
0: thanks everybody that is cheering for him. Sure, sure. I mean, we talk about Ricky Morton when we talk Babyface 101. I dare you to go back and watch any Rock and Roll Express promo where Ricky Morton doesn't tell the fans, thank you and we love you.
1: And I, and I told you, one of the warmest handshakes I ever got from anybody I met in the business looked me in the
0: face and said, thank you for coming. And I think he meant it. <laughs> it was, that was a shoot, too. I, I know, Punky, that was a shoot. But, but you know, and, and also, once again, I didn't think I was going to bring this up, but I will. When, when you discuss, once again, how things are changing in the business because of this NWO angle, one of the things I think we both have talked about at length uh, not liking about the change is the overscripted nature of the current wrestling product. That promo by Hogan wasn't scripted. That was promo 101. That's Hogan knows how to cut a promo. When those fans started throwing the trash into the ring and he immediately switched and changed uh you know, he used it to his advantage. Oh, this piece of garbage represents you the fans. How brilliant is that? <laughs> I'm going, that's how you cut a promo, man. Uh, you know, I and and once again, this is classic wrestling memories, but I don't think there's many guys on the current roster of of any of the bigger promotions that could do that, and partly because they won't let them. But, you know, everything about that was, I mean, because I can tell you as a worker looking at how that whole match went down, there was a fishbone of an idea of what they were going to do, a few key spots to lead to things, because you got the cues for the announcers. Hogan went in with with a fishbone of an idea of what he was going to say, and the rest was improvisation. And you see what happens when you let talented guys do what we're trained to do, and we practice for years in front of live crowds to do. It's magic. Mm-hmm. It's magic.
1: And there's a reason why in our babyface 101 episode that we picked, we we mutually agreed to talk about Hogan as being one of the greatest babyfaces of all time. And yet, as he was, yeah. And yet here he is. All of a sudden, you went from. It, it's almost like what are those stages of recovery where at first of there's grief, like, yeah the like disbelief, yeah or, the
0: shock and and the anger disp- and bargaining mm-hmm. and all that stuff yeah you experienced you all of all those, those in, in that promo yes <laughs> <laughs> i was a worker at that point i saw i'm looking at it for the workers eyes going this is one of the most awesome things i've ever seen in my life you know yeah. Yeah. I, I i realized as a young green guy in the business at that point i've been in the business about a year at that point this is going to change the business i knew that right then you know
1: yeah, I, and, I remember. I, I remember. There's two opinions that I, I think uh, are merit merit being mentioned here. Uh, and bear with me here. One of them is Vince Russo, but because uh, you know, he he was working for WWF at the time, he just hadn't ascended to the uh, the head writer position. But he was still like right. d- doing the magazine or something like that. And, sure, sure. and he said, when when they pulled that off, I I just I put down the remote control. I I sat back and said, guys, we're done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yeah. you know because because cause of how amazing it was, and then another one, Bruce Mitchell, you know, journalist for Pro Wrestling Torch. The way he described Bass at the beach is, it was a one horse show, but that horse was Secretariat.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, like I said, it, I mean, if you go back and watch the whole show, and of course it's available on the network. The undercard's underwhelming to say the least. You know, I, I think maybe the best match on the undercard was Conan versus Flair for the U.S. title. <laughs> I mean, that's you know how much I think of Flair, and I think Conan's very underrated by American fans. That's a solid match, but that was about the only other thing of any consequence, and that ain't that much. Sorry,
1: folks. I got the results here: Ray Mysterio Jr. Uh, versus Psychosis, which I'm sure that was, was
0: probably a really an incredible match. I'm sure right. it was. It was. I like uh, said I watched this whole card about about two weeks ago.
1: John Tenta versus Big Bubba, which. Honestly, those guys could probably have a fine match, but I don't know what a Carson City Silver Dollar match is. What did they... Like? Oh,
0: it was terrible. It was a horrible gimmick match. It, 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 believe me, yeah. it was It, it was the, the drizzles. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Diamond Dallas Page against Hacksaw Jim Duggan.
0: Duggan was past his prime, and DDP had not made it yet.
1: Right. The Nasty Boys against Public Enemy.
0: Public Enemy never worked at WCW. Love the Nasty Boys. You know that. Not trying to speak ill of the dead. I mean, it's sad we don't have Johnny or Rocco anymore, but... That that was a gimmick that was never meant to really work in WCW, anyways. But it, go ahead, keep going. <laughs> Dean
1: Malenko, one of the greatest workers of all time, against in Disco. Yeah. yeah, against Disco Inferno. That actually wasn't a bad match. Oh, believe and or not. and that's that's the thing. Disco actually was not a bad wrestler, quite frankly.
0: No, I think Glenn Garbetti, who of course is Disco Inferno, was a guy who got strapped into a gimmick and it belied belo- how good he was in ring. Um, But here was a guy, for any aspiring wrestlers out there, um, no, he's never going to go down as Ric Flair or Hulk Hogan because of his placement on the card, but he made a very good substantial living and has a place in the business still this day and makes a living or part of his living off of the business because he was willing to take a chance and develop a character and wasn't worried about likes on the internet because he did a five-star in-ring match, even though he could. Mm -hmm. I'll get off my soapbox now. Go ahead. Keep going uh Steve McMichael against Joe Gomez. Oh my god. So you got a job guy against a guy who can't work. Mhm. Sorry Steve, I know you're a Bears fan, Seth, but we both <laughs> can agree Michael mean Michael had the look, the attitude, of the promo skill uh of a of a horseman, but he didn't have the in-ring skill. I think we can all agree on that. Right. Right. The and best part of any the best part of any Steve M- M- Michael match was was the puppies on his wife coming to the ring with him, but I digress. As you said before, Ric Flair uh, against Cohen
1: End for the U.S. title, mm-hmm. uh, and that
0: was one where I think could have been better. But Flair, it's Flair. He wasn't going to be happy being in the U.S. title hunt. That's not Ric Flair, right? If you if you if you're listening to classic wrestling memories, I don't think I have to explain that to you.
1: You know, mm-hmm. uh, the giant and the taskmaster, who of course was Kevin Sullivan against Aaron mm-hmm. Anderson and Chris Benoit. So you got two young, upcoming guys against two guys that are are at the waning parts of their career. Or at least you know, kind of one on each side, really. I guess is
0: that's what I'm say saying. It. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah. that's
1: what I meant. Yeah. So there you go. And of course, the main event you know, with the the outsiders against Randy Savage, Sting, and Lex Luger.
0: Right. And so I mean, I just think the card itself sucked, but the seismic shift, like you said, the first shot had been fired at that point. We saw it coming with the lead up, and like we said, Bischoff getting hands laid on him, and that you know the promos. But then I think as you go through the angle, of the NWO, if that was the high spot. I think it was an angle that had a potential to be, you know, the greatest angle of all time. I don't think in my opinion it ever lived up again to that that moment in time at Bash the Beach. Do you?
1: I think that argument could be made. I mean, there was a lot of good stuff that that came afterwards, sure. but but nothing quite on that level of jaw dropping. Right. I I think really the closest thing we could get just in my opinion, just a, as a fan uh mm-hmm. watching the closest thing that probably happened to that was a few months later. I mean, I don't know if we we're going to go like month by month here. No, no, I just but. overview. But go ahead. A few months later, I think it was after Fall Brawl. The whole fake sting thing, which is really the next phase in this story, mm-hmm. I thought
0: I thought was great. Uh, it, I, I thought it was good too. I thought that was good too. I, I have to admit, the the weeks after the next, I will say three, four, five weeks were awesome mm-hmm. because they kept the the suspicion of. Uh, Of who's going to be, and I can't remember if it was two or three weeks later, the gravitas that they, that that they put onto this angle where the, the NWO was now out of control. They had, you know, these three guys who are running roughshod and were just showing up whenever they wanted in a limo, somehow getting preferential treatment. And we couldn't figure out how if they were an invading group and just healing. They were laying lace to everybody. And, And I, and I, you remember the one week, I think, which really, once again, heal 101 where there's the match going on in the ring and Jimmy Hart comes running out to the ring. I want to say it was Luger and Sting were in the ring at the time against the horsemen begging anybody to come help. The, the NWO is there. And then the cameras, which we've talked about before. we hate these current vignettes where it's like, Oh, and there just happened to be a camera there. I mean, it looks so fake. We actually, you know, he had to get a camera and it was obvious because it wasn't in focus. The camera was running to where the action had taken place and they weren't there prior to see the fallout. You remember that? I mean, just Arn Mm -hmm. laid out and, and the American males who was buff Bagwell and Scott Riggs laid out. And then one of the 10 greatest bumps in all time, you know, the, the dart shot where Ray jumps off of the, of of that comes out of the trailer and jumps off the railing and Kev catches him and just throws him into the side of the, the building and takes this huge bump for him. And do you remember what happened when they came back from the break?
1: Not offhand, I, I know the exact spot that you are talking about with, with mm-hmm. Nash throwing throwing Ray Mysterio.
0: That's uh, a great visual, wasn't it? That's one of mm-hmm. the best visuals ever in wrestling. Uh, you know, uh, but when they came back from break, it was awesome. It was what once again what wrestling should be. The announcers didn't say anything; they laid out all we heard was panic by everybody in the back. Nancy Benoit, you know, woman going crazy because Arn's hurt and Flair pissed, and Sting trying to help out the the, the American males. And you've got heels and babyfaces laying there, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, David Crockett and Doug Dillinger and these background guys running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Where's the – we need the ambulances. That's what would really happen if something like that happened, if a bunch of thugs – you know, I, it, it, they went to break, if you remember, with Kevin Nash and Scott Hall getting in a limousine and hauling off – and Randy Savage jumping on top of the limo and grabbing it, and trying to—that re- was remember. a great visual too. That was <laughs> yeah. an awesome. Of course, you did. It's a Randy Savage spot. What are you talking? About? <laughs> but it was a great visual, and it fit Randy's character. I mean, everything about this was awesome. That's once again how wrestling's supposed to be done. The fans were in shock, but once again, it's a little bit of hot shot booking. You're, you're trying to up your, you're trying to, you're trying to one up yourself every week, and you can't do that. You got to let the fans relax every once in a while. But nonetheless, it was, it was awesome, you know, at the same time. It was, and Ray Mysterio, who's been beat up so bad, he's speaking half Spanish, half English, and they're asking Eddie Guerrero, what's he saying? He said, there's four. He goes, what do you mean there's four? There's three, you know? And so now they've laid this seed in our, in our head as fans and viewers. What are you talking about? Four people. It was just awesome. It was just awesome. And when they, when they went to break again and they came back again, if you remember at that point in time, they had two announced teams doing, they had two announced teams doing Nitro. Right. One for each uh, hour. For each hour. They had Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco did the opening hour and Bobby Heenan and Eric Bischoff did the second hour. Bobby Heenan came out and said, uh, I got to ask you, Eric, you have a lot of pull around here. And this is one of the first times on camera we're kind of like you said, revealing that Eric has a lot more power than just an announcer, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it, it all seems real because, well, Bobby's a hell of a worker. We all know that, right? He goes, I have a bad neck. I've had neck surgery. Can you guarantee my safety? No, Bobby, I can't. Well, then, then I can't do this show tonight. And put his headset down and Eric said, that's fine. I don't blame you. That's the little things that they don't do in wrestling anymore. You know? Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, and what made it also work, I mean, we talk about babyface and heels and all that. Mm-hmm. The NWO was so despicable that the other heels didn't like him. you know? Larry Zbyszko called Hogan's turn uh what epic
0: unmanliness or something like that. Yeah. Oh, uh, Larry Zbyszko was at his finest during this whole NWO run because he's such a wordsmith and he has that sarcastic wit about him that made him so effective as a heel promo when he was when he was you know spewing his bile and venom towards the new heel NWO he became a babyface by default. Remember, mm-hmm. crowds start cheering him.
1: Right, and it, it, like, it got to the point where there would be the Larry Chance, and he'd have to stop and tip his head to the, to the fans.
0: And you're sitting there going, this is the same guy that busted Bruno San Martino wide open. This guy, that guy. The kid, and this guy's getting cheered like that? Wow. <laughs> Spud you know? Head, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going, wow, this is a brave new world. And you remember another thing they did in that angle, this part of the angle, and this was the only time the announcers did not sit out as they showed the medical personnel working on the injured wrestlers. There were Dungeon of Doom and, and, and Four Horsemen members backstage, and Benoit and Ming almost got into it, and they separated them. and Fla- I think it was Flair said, "This isn't the time or the place." And then they showed baby faces and heels, Ric Flair getting an ambulance with Benoit, Nancy Benoit, and Arn Anderson, and then one of the American males and Sting getting in the same ambulance. These guys were just wrestling when this angle started, and everybody knows the history between Flair and 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 Sting. They're putting aside their differences and getting in the back of an ambulance together because their comrades are falling. That's the kind of stuff that were the lot true black hat, white hat stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the guy that was wearing the black hat's a white hat. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, I guess. I right. mean, little small things like that. You're like, this was really blurring the lines. And you're going, wow, this is amazing. you know. And then the next week, do you remember the next week when they started the broadcast? WCW had a whole bunch of like mid card guys that were looked and some of whom are legit badasses, come out, sit at ringside and said, we're going to let whatever happens in the ring happen, but NWO is not going to interfere tonight. I mean, so it was every week they were laying layers to it and it was like boss man, Ming barbarian and Scott Norton come out to the ring.
1: Yeah. And there were times where I think if you look closely, the security guards had pepper spray and they'd have cops like armed cops Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) at the doors. Exactly. (laughs) Right, right. and But here's the key, and it's what doesn't happen nowadays. And it goes into what we're talking about. And all this ties right back into our Babyface and Healing 101 episodes. The reason they were getting over his heels is because you were allowing them to get legitimate heel heat. They were beating down, blindsiding, babyfaces. And, and like we said, yes, some of these guys like the Four Horsemen were heels. But in, in, in the overall scheme, it was the NWO was heels and, and, and WCW WCW's babyfaces. And it was still getting the reaction you wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. W. I was getting food. WCW was getting cheered no matter who it was and it worked and it was magic and heels can't get over if you don't let them beat up baby faces from behind. It's that simple.
1: As Steve Austin once said, you know, you can't have bank robbers that don't rob banks.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we just don't see that nowadays. Um, and this, quite frankly, might be one of the last times we ever saw we last times we've ever seen on a national wrestling promotion. I've been a few other times, but at this scale where it was true baby face heel. And so it was like that for weeks, you know, uh, and I think that's where the problem started. Every once in a while, they would have something to divert our attention. Like you brought up the, the fakes thing. And once you go over that angle a little bit, then I'll come back to my thought.
1: Yeah, it was, I want to say, August of 1996. And this was around the time of Road Wild, because up to this point, uh, the giant big show had been. The world champion. And I think he was also one of the names that was in the hat to combat mm-hmm. the NWO uh, in that in that draw. Mm-hmm. But they did a bit where there was supposed to be like a new NWO member, uh, and Luger was outside. I think it was even in the rain, if I recall correctly, because they like had umbrellas. Yeah, it was. And you didn't really get the best shot of it, which is works perfectly with the angle. But you see somebody that very much looks like Sting hop out of the limo and attack Lex Luger. And they make you think that Sting's joined the NWO. Now, if I recall correctly, uh, the moment that happened, a lot of people actually s- switched the channel out of disgust. I would think it would be out of disgust, yeah. but you know, they, they they would switch over to Raw.
0: Well, I think it was part. I think part of them was disgust, and part of them were like this is just my opinion. You were starting to get a, a larger contingency of quote unquote smarks at this point, you know, mm-hmm. and some were like, "Really, you're going to turn the the other top babyface in the company heel too? This is ridiculous." He right. already turned Hogan. Right. You see my point?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Because I thought the same thing. Yeah, you know, I thought, why would they turn? He, you know, he's supposed to be the Superman in this. And that's what you've got to have.
0: You got somebody stand up to the back, guys,
1: <laughs> right? Right. And they did that whole thing of was it Sting or wasn't it? And remember, again, this is a day. This is a time before cell phones. Before, the well, s- you know, some people had cell phones, but, you know, the internet was I in had its the, infancy. I,
0: I, had, I had the internet, but it was, you know, like a 26.6. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, so the, the whole idea of, well, maybe Lex Luger wasn't able to talk to Sting, you know, or, or call him or something like that, because probably the main point of communication they had were home phones. Right. You know? And so the, and the, But then they did that reveal, because that was like the go-home show to the war games, I want to say, the fall brawl. I think so. Yeah, and they did that whole build up, and and one of the go home shots you see is that Sting attacked Lex Luger, and then of course they did the four on four war games. If you know how war games matches go, you know how how it is. Uh, but the last guy out for the NWO was the you know Fake Sting. quote unquote Sting, you know, or or as as Larry Zbysko would call him, Stink.
0: Uh but, <laughs> like and, I just said Larry Smithko was at his absolute finest during this whole angle. he really <laughs> was it's <this> awesome <laughs> and
1: now, my understanding is the fake sting was the uh, he was like lieutenant Cobra or something like that a few months right. earlier. He was, he was,
0: his, his real name's Jeff farmer, and like Not I jumping said earlier, Jeff farmer no <laughs> right, no 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 yep <laughs> uh who was who was a who was, was, was a power plant product who like I had said earlier, when we discussed where Bischoff got the idea over in Japan, they had an NWO faction going on over in Japan as well as part of their working relationship. Which was, uh, and, was that Techno Team 2000? No, no, that was, uh, it was Chono and um, Muda, but as Muda, not as Kenji Muto, as the great Muda. Right. Which, you know, if for those of you who don't know, Kenji Muto, the, the wrestler who portrays the great Muta, both in Japan and in the United States, he'll wrestle as himself without the face paint, as Kenji Muto as a baby face, but then we will wrestle as a heel as the Great Muto with the, the spray and the mist and all that stuff. You know, but anyway, sometimes we'll a, yeah. we will probably do a whole long-form episode on Great Muto at some point, because he's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. But anyway,
1: I, I would definitely look forward to that. But anyway, so... <laughs> Anyway, just watching it as a twenty something, he was
0: big over there. Was I was going to say he was a part of the of the New Japan thing? You know, mm-hmm. he was part of that, and he was actually very over in Japan as the fake Sting. But anyway, I digress.
1: <laughs> but I I thought he did a good job being Sting. I mean, if you looked closely, you know, you could see it. But the initial mm-hmm. reaction, he had the mannerisms down, and then mm-hmm. you know the final man coming out for Team WCW is the real Sting, who now feels betrayed by everybody who cared about him and believed in him comes out and just beats the holy blanking blank (laughs) out of everybody out of all the heels and then he looks at luger and says is that enough proof for you you know
0: flips off luger and leaves (laughs) and and of course this is all we forgot to mention this is the birth of the the crow sting the black and Mm -hmm. white sting
1: Right, Sting actually had stopped dyeing his hair blonde by this time. He had his he hair had a little bit of length in it, and, and it was dark. And I remember him saying in a uh, TNA uh, interview set that I have that he was smart enough to notice, like what we were talking about earlier, about the baby faces starting to get booed. So that's why mm-hmm. he changed up his look, and he, he started wearing uh, black sequins instead of red, white, and blue sequins, mm-hmm. uh, or
0: you know, just, just darker outfits. Cause and it was... And he will give credit. It was Scott Hall, who has always kind of had his thumb on pop culture, just kind of the guy he is, who was a fan of the Crow movie, you know, the Brandon Lee movie, which had been popular just, what, two or three years earlier. Right, yeah, it, said, it, was, you know, uh, he, he,
1: it was fall of 93, I, I think.
0: Yeah, he's like, have you seen this movie, The Crow? I think you need to kind of go for this vibe. And it's like we, we talked about in pop culture, this was the rise of the antihero. So Sting realized, if I'm going to stay a baby face, maybe I need to be an antihero. You know? Right. Or as Sting tells the story, he said
1: Scott Hall just came up and said, Hey, yo, I think you ought to paint your face up like the crow. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I don't know if Steve Borden had seen the crow at that point or not, but I'm pretty sure since that point he's probably seen it. Just saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Completely off topic, but, you know, tragically. There's another one we tragically lost too early in Brandon Lee, but anyway. <laughs> we'll save that for Geekville Radio. <laughs>
1: Actually, I, I was wrong. It was actually May of 94, not late 93, but... You know. Okay. But anyway, regardless, it wasn't, it wasn't that many years
0: removed, is what we're saying. Right. It right. was on we're, the public conscious still. Yeah, we're talking approximately two years. I think... This is just my opinion. I know you're a big Sting fan. You love that. This is about the point to me where the NWO jumped the shark, in my opinion. It was like... I, I think the, the, the fake Sting thing was, was cool, and it was probably a good way to do what we're talking about in the sense that it allowed... Sting to develop an anti-hero kind of character and definitely make him the man that stands alone. But because they kept teasing every week a change or somebody new joined the NWO, it just got bloated, you know, and it became literally hot shot booking every week. Well, who's going to show up next and who's going to show up next? And that gets old after a while. The baby faces have got to have something. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. And... Uh, you know, as awesome as we were just talking about this stuff was, was this is baby facing and heel 101. Yeah. You got to let the baby faces get beat down by the heels to get the heel heat and get sympathy for your baby faces. But if they never come back and they never get a chance to get one up on the, on the heels, it kind of ruins it. And that's when I think the NWO, and this was around that time started getting baby face pops and started and they started playing cool heels. And then some of the cool, then some of the, of the effectiveness, in my opinion, started to fade. What, what are you thinking? Am I wrong in my time frame or, or am I wrong in that, in the whole thought process there? Looking
1: back in hindsight, uh, you're certainly not wrong. Uh, now, like I said, I, I liked this whole sting thing as, as a fan. Uh, Cause I thought sting came out and again, cut a killer promo. Saying, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, you know, saying as far as I am concerned, you fans can stick it. Uh, and he did that entire promo with his back to the hard camera, which I don't think has ever been done since then for obvious reasons. It's not something you normally do. You don't turn your back mm-hmm. to the to the camera, uh, whether it's whether it's wrestling or show business. But for that moment in time, it was effective
0: because of what it meant by him doing that. It was it was a physical way of of going. I am I am fed up with this. It hadn't hit me yet, but
1: again, I w- I still don't claim to be smart to the business, but I certainly wasn't smart to the business then. Mm-hmm. I was loving it. Uh, I th- I can definitely see in hindsight as things go on when we started to have more people join uh, the group that that's kind of where it got watered down. And my understanding is there was a thought in the back of Bischoff's mind of the NWO becoming its own promotion. And that's sure, why so I many mean, people were, were, were
0: joining. Because it wasn't long after this when you're talking, I think it was February of the next year, we had the one and only NWO alone, only uh, pay per view mm-hmm. uh, sold out, and, and there is a great example. And if you remember uh, that pay per view, it was you know all NWO guys. They had their own referee. They were essentially they were they were being presented as though they were their own promotion. And the problem with that is it sounded great on paper, but it goes back to what I just talked about. So now we're supposed to have a whole show, we're supposed to have a whole show or nothing but heels go over and the crowd's going to care and want to come back. Right. Yeah, you you don't go watch the Return of the Jedi if, if Empire Strikes Back doesn't end the way it ends, you know? Right, right, I mean, right think exactly. About, I, mean, I mean, Lando going off to get a now-frozen Han, and Luke's hand's been cut off, and he's just gotten the bad news. We're like, well, what's going to happen? But we've been given enough at the end of A New Hope to realize, well, the baby faces are going to get something somewhere. They weren't giving us that at this point in this angle, you know? <laughs> they right. really and-
1: weren't. And going back to what we were talking about with people joining, between October of 1996 and January of 1997, here's the names of the people that joined. And I think you can guess the only one name out of here that I think may be the most effective. And that's arguable because it's more on on an international level. Vincent, a.k.a. Virgil, Marcus Bagwell. Yeah, he really sold a lot of tickets, didn't he? Virgil did one thing very, very well. Stood there And and scowled. Well, he would get on the apron, and the baby face would shake the rope, and he would take that
0: flying bump inside and onto his back. He did that very well. But one bump does not a, does not a great match make, though. Okay, unless it's Mick Foley going off the top of the of the cage. But I digress.
1: <laughs> but anyway, so we had Vincent, Marcus Bagwell, Michael Wall Street, aka Mike Rotunda, Scott Norton, Big Bubba Rogers, aka Big Boss Man Ray Trailer, and Masahiro Chono. One of these names is not like the other.
0: Yeah, Chono was a huge international star. And don't get me wrong, Ray Trailer, seven years before this, in the middle of his boss man run, heck yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, and Mike Rotunda, same thing. Seven, eight years before that, varsity club, sure. Now. Right, Chono is
1: the only name on that list that I could see standing next to Hogan, Hall and Nash and not looking like, well, this guy's just tagging along.
0: Go go ahead and say it, looking like a chump. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead and say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he would not look like a chump standing next to Hogan. No, no, no. And that's the thing. It's just that it got bloated, and too many people joined, and it was the same thing every week. And now you're hot shot booking, and there's no define. And like I said, in, in the process of doing that, you're also not allowing the baby faces to have anything that gives the fans a belief that at some point the baby faces are gonna get, are gonna win this thing. And so you know, looking back on that now. I can see why some of the fans started cheering for the NWO. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> can't beat them, join them, right? <laughs> I, I remember
1: Eric Bischoff being interviewed. I can't remember if it was WCW Live or if it was Dave Meltzer's IATA show back in the day, uh-huh. which, you know, when you think about it, Dave Meltzer was podcasting before there was podcasting. Yes, but, was. <laughs> you know, uh, but Eric Bischoff had said, and this was around the time he was trying to buy WCW. This was like late 2000, early 2001. Right? And, and he said, well, when you got the nwo going around saying wcw sucks mm-hmm. and wcw doesn't actually accomplish anything in response well then wcw does
0: suck don't they right they're telling the truth Right, yeah. and that's where i think i was talking about earlier bischoff is not a wrestling guy he's a tv guy he doesn't see the big picture and i think that that mentality of the hot shot in every week only worrying about the the the, the ratings and that—that that is some of the bad things that came out of the NWO in particular, but the, the Monday Night Wars in general. You know, you are, um, you
1: are exactly right. That is one of the things I was going to bring up. That we were still feeling the effects of this twenty years later. Is so much stuff is segment by segment, and segment by segment is okay as long as you have a payoff at the end. But so much wrestling for the last twenty years is it's booked. I don't want to say by the seat of their pants, but it's booked on a week by week basis and not saying, this is our main event for our
0: biggest show of the year and that's six months away. How do we get there? Right. It's the idea that, I mean, this is not going to sound unusual, I think, to any of our listeners. The idea of the opening 15 to 20 minute in ring interview segment that sets up what's to come later in the night and all the shenanigans that we get between that point and the end of the show. And we've already figured out what the end of the show is going to be based on all that. That all started about this time with all the shenanigans they were doing with how they used the NWO on Nitro. Don't you agree?
1: You're exactly right. Now, granted, I think it happened a lot more often in the main event segment sometimes with, with the talking. But yeah, that whole thing of guys coming out for a promo and then their rival walks out and then the authority figure comes out and makes a
0: match for the end of the night. And by my means, am I blaming, blaming just the NWO because... Of course, the knee-jerk reaction to this would be the Attitude Era and the rise of Stone Cold and The Rock. And they did the same thing, you know, Vince mm-hmm. did. So, I mean, they both were guilty of it. But the NWO was the one that really started it. That was an example of Vince actually copping in the competition, not the other way around, you know? Right, right. And I'm going to give you one more example. Uh,
1: this is what I was alluding to uh, a little bit ago when I was talking about the, the probably the closest thing that led to a, as big of a jaw drop as Hogan turning. And so we we got two things here now that WCW was doing before WWE that we are still seeing the effects of today. One is that show opening promo. The other one is Eric Bischoff turning heel and joining the NWO, which they never really truly explained. I think uh, Zabisco no. probably had the best explanation, and that he was being used, and maybe he was he was afraid or something to that effect. But they never panned that out. But the right. point is, when Bischoff did that turn on Piper or what I should say, you know, uh, lured Piper Piper called in. him out on it. Yeah, yeah, Piper called, Piper him, out. called Piper him out. Piper out figured it. it out, yeah. Uh, that, I thought, was an amazing segment that I thought, holy crap, now they got, like, actual authoritative figure involved. So mm-hmm. before Vince McMahon, now you can argue Vince does it better, but bef- long before Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff was being the heel authority figure. That is something that is still done very much today.
0: No, you brought when you brought up Piper. It reminds me there were moments up to where we're going to end this talk where the babyfaces did get a chance to come out on top. But the problem was they never followed through with it. They should have. That should have been the end of some part of this NWO and moved on. They never did. It just kept they kept flogging a dead horse. You know, there Mm -hmm. was that moment with Piper that, if you remember, led to the the match with Hogan at uh, Starcade that year, Starcade '96, Mm -hmm. which was. You know, and and, and Piper won, but it didn't matter because it wasn't for the world title. You know, right. In hindsight, it should
1: have been. And I I know Hogan had his creative control, so I don't know if that had anything Mm -hmm. to do with it. But before that, I think there were two big victories that the baby faces had. Uh, If I recall correctly, the first victory WCW had over the NWO was Chris Jericho beating Nick Patrick with one arm tied behind his back. Right, That was that was right. the first loss the NWO had. And the second one, I think it was the same night. But technically, Jericho's match stu- was how first. How stupid
0: is that? A, re- a wrestler versus a... a ba- uh, uh, with his arm time against a referee. Come on.
1: Right. But the
0: first major match loss
1: was Luger beat the Giant in, in a match uh-huh. and where the whole thing was Sting coming in and just leaving his bat in the middle of the ring and leaving. Right, right.
0: Now, another one that covers a few others. There was uh, a few months after the Piper thing if you remember and once again i think they didn't have any other choice if they had a riot when they had a pay-per-view in charlotte i want to say in the spring of 97 they had kevin green who was an nfl player rick flair and piper beat the outsiders and and by that point had joined x um, as six and that was a, that was a that was a straight babyface heel match where i mean that was the night kevin and scott and and if Sean and Kevin and Scott had done that the whole round of the NWO, it would have lasted forever if you go back and watch that match. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one that I know you're fond of because of who was involved, in the su- that summer they had that hot run where they did give Luger a clean submission victory for the title on Nitro right. over Hogan in the yeah. middle of NWO's run.
1: And then you had to pay to see Hogan beat Luger a few days later, and then Luger like just practically disappeared.
0: Right, but as good as that was, well, once again— Hot Shot Booking you gave away on on free TV the match that you should have had people pay to pay in pay-per-view buys to see. Yeah, really. I
1: mean I, I mean it almost makes as much sense as Shinsuke Nakamura facing John Cena on free TV to see who's going to face Jinder Mahal on the show you have to pay for. Uh. And there
0: again once again the the fallout <laughs> of of the NWO angle. It's all the great it had there was bad that came out of it too, you know.
1: All right, so as we wrap up our talk here on the NWO and Please, if there's anything that you want to talk about, because, quite frankly, the NWO, we could probably do a couple more shows on, on the NWO, mm-hmm. quite frankly. But if there's anything you want us, want us to talk about, uh, hit us up, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The Facebook is at A1Wrestling, and the Twitter is at A1WPodcast. I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com. And Train, you can be reached at Train underscore JB, right? On Twitter? That's correct. That's correct. So we're going to wind up our talk on the NWO here with... What I thought was where the wheels were kind of running off the railing. And Train, you pointed out how this was actually happening much earlier. But me, just as a fan watching, uh, this was where I started to say, wait a minute here. And that is Starcade 97, which really had a lot of good matches on it. But the main event of the show was Sting finally getting his hands on Hulk Hogan. And you had those epic intros. Uh, This is long before... The high definition, you know, fireworks and stuff like that that would, that that would happen on WrestleMania and such. But uh, Rusev
0: riding out in the tank,
1: still do. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, amazing. But anybody who has watched that match knows that there was supposedly this fast count by Nick Patrick, which wasn't a fast count, and then Bret Hart came out, restarted the match, and Sting battled back and won. This is my proposal, and this is what I thought going into the match. Uh so I I know I'm using I have to use the honor system here. I can't prove it unless, you know, you talk to some of my friends that I know at that time. But my thought of how it should have ended was based off segments leading up to that where somebody would be in the ring and whether it was Luger, whether it was the Steiners, uh, I think Savage was in this at, at some point but he hadn't turned yet. DDP. DDP. Yeah, where Sting came out with the baseball bat, handed the person the bat, handle first. And then turned his back, and he was doing this, in my opinion, at the time, to people he thought were worthy to combat the NWO. Right. And the best analogy I can come up with, if you've watched late '80s, early '90s WCW, is it would have been something similar to Bash at the Beach, in 1990, when Sting beat Flair. Uh, you know, the the NWO would come out to interfere for Hogan, just like the the Horsemen did in 1990. And then all the good guys, I think it were the dudes with attitudes at the time. Mm-hmm. In this case, though, it would be all the people that Sting gave bats to. They all come out, big Pier 6 brawl on the outside, and that leaves Sting in the ring alone with Hogan. And he finally polishes off Hogan and wins the title. That's how I think it should have ended.
0: You but really book over things, don't you? <laughs> you know how it should have ended? Hmm. One, two, three with, with, with Hogan counting, as, counting lights. That's it. That's how and, it should have ended. Yeah. And, and in the end, you're right. All I, that other stuff you're talking about, that's just fanboy servicing. Okay. I, I get it. It would have been a great visual. I think you would have overbooked it at that point. This is my opinion. You know? Yeah. Well, you're not wrong. Going back to what we talked about this earlier, every time there had been a glimmer of hope for the fans, and it lo- I thought they were riding the ship, whether it's, you know, Flair and Piper and Green beating the, the Wolfpack, whether it's Luger and his short run they would go right back and just bury the baby faces of WCW again. If you remember the night after oh, yeah. the night after flair and, and Piper and them, they conveniently make it where Piper and Kevin Green are gone flares by himself and gets set up by the NWO. What he thinks is going to be a one-on-one match against X-Pac. And he winds up getting jumped by all three of them. You know, it, it's like, and they do it like in Winston Salem or some like horseman country town, you know? And it's like, Every time y'all like you're going to get something right and going to move on, you don't, you, it, it was, you cannot. it doesn't do any good. You've built up all this cachet of positivity with your fan base because you have done the right thing. And, and I thought this was the last opportunity they had to do that in this thing, because the story they have been telling with the fake sting and all that stuff we talked about earlier had been leading to this moment. And I was like, okay, I haven't been happy with some of the curves in the road, But if this was your end game, this was your end game, and it makes sense because Sting's the face of the company. You know, Mm -hmm. we we said that early on in the podcast. So the simple, logical, easy finish is just let Sting beat Hogan clean. We don't need a fast count. We don't need Bret Hart coming out. We don't need all the guys that he gave baseball bats to to come out and stop the run in. We don't need any of that. This is clean and simple. And then it should have been over. The NWO should have fractured from there and fought in... And there's where your other angles come out of. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. And we got how many more years of the NWO? And that's the other
1: problem, is there was never a formal end to the NWO. They they were never truly vanquished. It was just... No. just At, at some point, there just wasn't an
0: NWO. Hell, they resurrected them in the WWE later on, ten years later, when Vince bought the company. It's like, mm-hmm. the NWO, I mean, I guess in summation was a great idea that had arguably one of the greatest starting to an angle any wrestling fan has ever seen. Mm -hmm. It never ended. And that's not good. There has to be a final chapter in a story. And there never was. You you need a
1: beginning, a middle, and an end. And now you can do a sequel after you have the end, but there has to be an end. Right.
0: Exactly. And we never got that. And... It was one of the many things, I think, that led to the demise of WCW. Uh, and I think we've gone on at great length talking at how a lot of the aspects of the NWO angle, as great as they are and as fondly as we as fans look back on it, we're still feeling the negative ramifications to this very day. I will say this as a wrestler at the time, which is probably a unique perspective that I don't know if you'd ever thought about. As a wrestler at the time, obviously your goal was to get to WCW or WWF at the time, or on a smaller scale, ECW because they were your three national promotions. You know, Mm -hmm. the NWO did open up a bidding war for talent. And we constantly saw guys going back and forth between both companies. Mm -hmm. That was part of what came out of this. It did open up a lot of avenues for us guys and gave us hope, you know, because like they're going to need talent. They're going to need fresh faces. And, um, so for, for the aspect from the business, it was a good thing. You know, um, uh, People don't think that also because of the NWO and its success, like we said, it begat the Attitude Era, which begat you know the Monday Night Wars. That also caused both products to expand their live television every week. And when you expand, you've got to have larger rosters. Uh, a lot of people forget AJ Styles was in WCW for a cup of coffee because of that need for extra talent. That's where he got his first break nationally. And then you know, then he came back to the Indies for a while, and then he, then he went to TNA, and look at where he is now. But mm-hmm. that was – I mean, I, I, I don't think I get my tryout match. Granted, it was after the Monday Night Wars was over. It wasn't until 2001. I don't get it without this, though. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was – it just is what it is. And so that's probably a unique perspective. You're not going to get other places for a guy who was a worker at this time. It was a very bright time for us in the business uh it, it definitely uh, lit a collective fire under everybody's rear ends uh and and caught, captured the imagination of fans and led to directly and indirectly other things that was the last boom period for wrestling it was a great time to be a wrestler but also see where it had bad ramifications too you know mm-hmm. but at the end of the day the first two months from the time Scott Hall came out to about the point where the fake thing started that was some of the best episodic television, the way wrestling should be I've ever seen in my life.
1: I liked it for a lot longer than you than you did, but then again, like I said, even at that time, you were far more privy to the business than I was. So
0: I, I started seeing the writing on the wall. You know, it's just one of those things that's like, as happy as I am, this has opened up avenues to me and my friends, we're gonna lose the crowd. And I didn't want to be prophetic, but I wound up being prophetic. Right. We did. Well, that's going to wrap up our talk here on Volume
1: 8 of Classic Wrestling Memories, talking the NWO. And if there's anything about the NWO you want us to talk about, or if there's anything in the history of wrestling you want us to talk about, once again, the website's ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. There are Facebook post options there. The F- Facebook itself is at A1Wrestling, and the Twitter is a one W Podcast. Hit Crazy Train up at Train underscore JB on Twitter. I can be reached at Seth at a1-wrestling.com on email. So anything else you want to add in closing their train?
0: Nope. Go back and watch some of this stuff on the network because I enjoyed it. That visual of Ray Mysterio going in like a lawn d- that... Wow. <laughs> anyway. For Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock,
1: this is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrex, signing off for this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.